All of us are on a journey of becoming, a complicated journey in pursuit of truth and deeper knowledge of the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that it can be a painful and difficult journey and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson and I too am on a journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my journey and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith but it is perhaps one of its greatest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And hanging out with me today is actually a returning guest on the show. And that man would be Trip Fuller. Trip, how's it going? Well, now that I get to see your face, things just lighten up. <laughs> well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Anything oh, I can yeah. do to help bring, you know, joy and, and love and light into the world. Oh, well, in that case, I want to update on this. Uh, now you got to like pioneer a new brew. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how's that going? You had, I saw really sweet logos and uh, you were sharing and such. So, so how's that going? Yeah, things are, things are going good, man. Um, I've been brewing now uh, for probably forgive my dog for barking. He'll stop soon uh, when my wife gets up, but uh I've been brewing now for like six or seven months, like professionally. Mm -hmm. That's been really cool. Um, the spot that I'm at now, Full Tilt, is uh, like just a really cool place. Uh, we have a lot of fun. We just actually checked this out. We just did on Friday a collab brew with another spot called uh, Brewer's Art. And their head brewer, Steve, has been brewing since the year I was born. And... <laughs> So that was pretty cool. And he's from the UK. And so like I was yeah, brewing funny. with like a legit brewmaster. And uh, that was really cool. We did a Belgian Dubel, uh, which should be lots of fun. You know, uh, you I'm sure you already know this, but, but listeners probably don't know that that's a, a classic style that the, the Trappist oh, yeah. monks would brew. And then when they were fasting, they would drink that. So yeah, anybody who's fasting than to... your average Belgian. <laughs> and uh in color and it, it's also efficient you know uh -huh. because what's it gonna run at is it gonna be like seven five or something like that uh so originally we were we were looking to do something a little bit above seven but it's probably just based off of how the brew went it's probably going to come in a little bit under that so it's probably mm -hmm. going to be between somewhere between 6.5 and seven all right yeah. yeah we didn't get as much efficiency out of it as we we were hoping for um but sometimes we'll when i would do belgians i would uh you know 
the grain bill would be that way. And then after like uh, four or five days in the fermenter, I would just start putting in that uh, Belgian candied sugar that's really dark and just see how much I could add every few days until the yeast kicks it. And um, uh, yeah, that then I'd be like, beers, fa they, they fasted with this. And if you fast and then drink the like 10% Belgian beer, it is uh, efficient. Yeah, it becomes very efficient, very fast. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Well, Dick, here, look, I'll, I'll show you over the camera because this this is not not before seen. But we're uh, I'm excited for this. I uh, just brewed this up on Wednesday. Uh, we did a We're doing a beer called Tribute, which is the Tenacious D reference. Here's the label for it. Nice. So it's going to be sick. <laughs> so on the front, it says, this is the greatest and best beer in the world. Tribute. <laughs> and then in the little blurb on the side, it says, and the peculiar thing is this, my friends, the beer we brewed on that fateful night, it didn't actually taste anything like this beer. This is just a tribute. <laughs> Which That's is funny. just absolutely wonderful. And uh, on the label, the guy that they have there is the devil. Uh, that's Bryce. <laughs> that's the other brewer. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I thought that was great. And he is thrilled to be portrayed in that way. So, <laughs> well, I mean, if you if you go in with satanic expectations, it's really hard, uh, you know, to they, they, to keep up with it. So then you just got to break the mold and go nice. You know, that's true. That's true. Sweet. <laughs> all right man well uh i guess like we should we can go ahead and and jump in here to the conversation i wanted to have with you although i think talking about beer is is way more fun uh, <laughs> so, i mean it can be you know right <laughs> well, if you if, if the intersection of uh discussing theology and beer I, I like both of them yeah that's true i think you have a podcast something yeah, along those lines right <laughs> it's, it's one i could work with yeah sweet well, dude, so like, I uh, guess this is, like I said, Trip Fuller. Uh, if you didn't know, Trip is the the host of the uh, Homebrewed Christianity podcast, which is like one of the OG podcasts out there. Uh, you're like early adopter of the whole podcast thing. I'm a yeah. poser and late to the game. Yeah, like, I'm just glad you didn't put a beer theme in your podcast. I uh, <laughs> There's quite a few dead podcasts that like, they're like, let's use religion and alcohol metaphors. And... And then when they get confused with me, I get irritated. When, <laughs> anyway, so you know, I I don't I don't have a large judgment towards you, just towards some others. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I appreciate the lack the lack of judgment. <laughs> toward I feel like rethinking faith is a pretty um a pretty safe name, although rethinking has been popping up a lot recently too. And people, so I I did the like put the re. And rethinking yeah. in, in parentheses. And yep. I have seen that popping up in, in other places now too. So I'm Ooh. I'm not I'm not saying they stole it from me. It could just be a coincidence, but uh I've seen it in uh book title recently. Um other yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> I I've saw it once where I think the you know it was revolutionary christianity but the parentheses around the r also meant it was evolutionary and nice. uh, <laughs> yeah the, a, but you know i like slashes slashes Ooh. that's what post truck 
structuralist philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, Diana Butler Bass and I are working on this class. I'm sure why this comes out, it'll be public. Cool. Um, but uh, it's called Jesus Deconstructed, but like D slash oh, yeah. constructed. And because um, we both wrote a lot of books on Jesus. And right. like because of that, then people reach out to you and they're like, um, I don't like hate Jesus. He's fascinating. <laughs> I, uh, but I have some issues with his fan club and <laughs> also like, and you know, they kind of group into three categories at least, or you tell me, this is what I've been thinking about, uh, was it, like, some of them are like intellectual questions around Jesus. Uh-huh. Like how do you do the Bible authority, like, Oh, hypostatic union, all that kind of stuff. Others are just like trauma and pain caused by the church. Right. And so then your question around Jesus, is like, He's cool, but his friends, like that's when Jesus turns into the Dave Matthews band. Where, like, <laughs> I like Dave Matthews band when I heard their first album and stuff. Then I go to their concert and meet Dave Matthews fans. And I'm like, ah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's a very fantastic crowd. Trippy, uh, probably not, not into Dave Matthews anymore. And it wasn't anything personal about them. Music was great. Um, and then and then you get sometimes people's issues, uh, you know. Uh, with Jesus and things are like institutional. So take you and I both have had different breakups with Jesus institutions. Right. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought we were, do- I thought we were on the same page, you know, like, I don't know, seek after truth in the way of Jesus, try to be faithful, what he called us to. And I'm trying to do that. And it really seems like you were lying. And what you really wanted was me to run this institution for its continued well-being, even if its mission was committed uh, to a very small part of Jesus' mission and worked against it in significant, unexamined ways, right? Like, and so the 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 idea of like the class is like, yeah, there there always is this complication of Jesus. Is tons of people have a relationship with him and experience God mediated by Jesus and all that kind of stuff, and then there's like everything that comes with it. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot. And I think being stuck in lockdown, uh, and people disengaging in lots of ways from kind of habits, rhythms, and communities, then like to decide how you re-engage into stuff puts a lot of that baggage into question. Like, do I need to show back up if I'm going to have to doubt, I can't doubt these things or ask these questions or, put myself in a situation where I'm going to be, you know, institutionally problematic or dealing with the kind of trauma and such. Yeah, man. I think all three of those, those, I mean, I, I feel like I myself can, you know, see myself in all three of those categories have, you know, uh, uh-huh. playing around in them. And I think that's cool too, that you guys are doing that class. I'm going to have to sign up for that because that like, so the, the reason I wanted to talk about Jesus stuff is because um, a while, like, I, so I was a part of this thing called Jesus Collective, like yeah, this, yeah. and uh, they're pretty cool. And I was Just super active. A business card. <laughs> Just listeners. Boom. Jesus Collective. With a big C around it that's almost a circle. <laughs> and so you don't know that you're getting JC'd, but you really are. But you really are. It's a sneaky thing. They must be like Baptists. Like, bro, this lady used to Every time she'd come to the grocery store, which I worked at when I was in high school, whenever mm-hmm. I would take her groceries out to her car for her, she would tip me with a fake hundred dollar bill. And then when you oh. opened it, it was just it a Bible tract. Yeah, it had eternal life in it. That's, yeah. 
did you <laughs> did you get excited about it every time? Because or maybe you see her and you're like, actually, I'm already saved. Could you get one of my coworkers to help you? That way you could witness to them because this is real effective. It's really effective. Like nothing brings people to the Lord. Like that moment where you realize you weren't recognized for your labor, but mostly as a depending object of divine wrath. Yeah. That, and I like, I loved that bit, the divine wrath part that made the rest of my work day, just like fantastic. Yeah. You're like, well, I might hate carrying groceries, but you know what? I won't have to carry the wages <laughs> of sin. The weights of sin. Exactly. Exactly. Now I don't have to have the, uh, have Satan breathing down my back as I package Ooh. these groceries. Uh, I just have this old lady's hundred dollar bill, man. Mm. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, the Jesus collective people are super cool. And I was a part of this thing they have called the, the theology circle. And uh, the task of said theology circle was to, uh, create we're working on two projects one to create like these a series of blog posts uh, that were like more topical in nature that was like here's jesus-centered theology on x and then there was a more larger uh writing project that was almost like building and writing a systematic like more academic systematic theology around jesus-centered stuff like jesus-centered theology all the all the fun ologies and whatever and so the question dawned on me, like, okay, we're doing this Jesus-centered stuff, but what Jesus are we talking about? And then, like, I couldn't ever get past that question. And, like, the, the, like, out of all the stuff that I had been willing to question and deconstruct, to use the popular language, uh, Jesus was, like, one of those things that was, like, a no-go zone for me. Because I felt like if I started questioning that dude, then like what else is there you know yeah. and so that's kind of that's kind of what uh what started it for me and then i was like nah not going to touch that shit that's too scary um <laughs> but then like i just eventually came to a place where it's like well i have to um so i started doing that and yeah so now i'm just like okay so now that i'm willing to ask all these kind of questions and i've you know i've listened to some really good conversations around stuff um in regards to this i've actually i've listened to some stuff that you've put out uh i thought dan's episode that he did recently about the virgin birth was was pretty good um i enjoyed that um yeah so that's that's kind of the, the the basis for my questioning and so like just for starters when it comes to this guy jesus uh like do we even have access to that question which jesus are we talking about like who is this jesus guy yeah yeah okay so there are two things first is i think you're right that christians have an awkwardness around asking questions about jesus that they don't have on other things right so like even you know once you walk out of one church and go in the next one you realize we don't even agree on atonement theories right like so or like who's ordained and can do what, or what happens at the Eucharist, all those kinds of things. There's like lots of live options. Um, but it seems at least, uh, especially in American, uh, like Christianity shaped by like American evangelicalism, there's like two options for Jesus. There's like, he's freaking like 
God and you better you better deal with it. And uh, and you always got and they probably pull like the C.S. Lewis card, you know, liar, lunatic or Lord that that, that move. Or they're like, look at those liberal Christians. They don't even really believe in Jesus anyway. And they may as, they're just sliding down a slippery slope. To, uh, who knows? But I could tell you my deep, dark sexual fantasies and projected on them if you want, you know. And so I think there's like there's that tension. And I always emphasize this, especially for people that have been scared to ask questions here is if you've encountered God and it's mediated by Jesus, whatever had to be true for you to have that encounter is true. Right. And being a listener of your own your podcast hearing your journey, and then like having to process, having these contemplative experiences that aren't as framed by your Christian faith that you had before, or these experiences of community outside the vocational framing of your, um, that your identity as a minister. Um, and then going like, well, I've had these other questions, can I ask these? Like, I kind of would want to just like, like do the initial bracket, go have two pints, give you a big hug and go like, hey, You've been driven by love so much that you encountered in Jesus that you keep rethinking and asking questions and you keep seeking community that moves towards justice and all that kind of stuff. So whatever the answers are that made the story of Jesus animate your existence towards love and justice in the present is true. Like it animated you. It might be none of it has to be true for it to do that, or it could be. Like you need a hypostatic union and a trinity and trips a heretic trying to lure you away from whatever the truth is. I'm just telling you like you have encountered the divine and the window to the divine is the story of Jesus and it has shaped and impacted you in beautiful ways. And so whatever you think about, like, like the mechanisms uh, that went in to that invitation that came through Jesus, that's important questions you shouldn't be scared to ask them. But you also shouldn't like doubt the fact that like this story has impacted and shaped you in beautiful ways. And it's calling you to be uh, like contribute to the world in life giving and liberating ways. That's awesome. And I think a lot of Christians, right? Like the way reason Jesus gets delayed, delayed, delayed. And then it's like the breakup point um, is because they imagine that everything good they've encountered in the divine is all justified by a set of theological ideas and then if you doubt or question them, then the validity of the encounter with the divine goes away. And I think that is something that I just would want anyone that's sitting there going like, I can't ask a question because then what happens if it's not true to go? No, no, you don't like go back in time. It's not like uh, uh, like some weird time uh, when you're playing with timelines and you erase it over here. And all of a sudden, Marty McFly's mom isn't marrying his dad and he's starting to disappear. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so, so that, so, the, uh, okay, I'll pause right there before I actually answer directly the question, but th does that make sense? Like, cause I listen to your podcast. I just want to, like, I would want to pause, go have a couple beers and hug and then be like, all right, I'll tell you some super nerdy things right now. Nah, dude. Hell yeah. I, I appreciate that deeply, man. Like, uh, like seriously, I think and that like that getting, trying to get comfortable with the what I guess I would call that like the experiential uh, aspect of my faith, the the Jesus that I've met um, in and through like different people and and whatever, like those things I feel like I like are impossible to question because then I'd have to question my reality, 
And I'd be like, okay, like, did this really happen? Was I high? Well, I, I don't think I was unless somebody drugged me. Um, but yeah, so I think there's like, I think realizing or like trying to start to realize things like that um, might be what was helpful in, in starting maybe to push me towards that uh, towards the willingness to, to question, um, just because of some kind of like, I don't know, for me, dude, it seems almost like the, I feel like I experience what I would call the Christ, uh, mm-hmm. in and through like a lot of different things. And, um, I, it's a weird though, cause it's a different kind, it's a different kind of like knowing, and there's a lot of like knowing without knowing, and it feels a lot more like, experience and wisdom i don't know it's it's weird dude like i don't <laughs> i don't know like i just i'm rambling because i don't really have words to, to describe anything but i think uh i think you nailed it on the head and i'll have to take you up on that beer oh yeah yeah well i'm <laughs> i'm uh i uh it, it'll be fun the uh also i was just jealous that you got john philip newell on your podcast i've been trying to get him on homebrewed for years and i don't even get responses and I'm like, geez, look at I, this. Yeah, that I I don't know how floor. that happened. I don't know how it happened. And hopefully, if you heard that interview, hopefully it didn't suck. Like, hopefully it was it was a conversation worth having him on the show for. Oh yeah, yeah. But that was book great. was that book was good. Um, I really enjoyed it. And John was awesome. He's just a fantastic human being. But you know, here the person that I I would love to talk to, and I've never got a response from, is your buddy Peter Rollins oh yeah well, i know he's probably a busy individual but well, i'll that, have to bother him yeah you should you should just keep annoying him <laughs> Sounds good. the uh <laughs> so you know when you restate the question because the way you said it was interesting about like uh like what we can know about jesus or something yeah like do we ha- do what acts like do we have access to the person of Jesus? So I know like historic Jesus studies is a thing, and like they've been you know doing their thing and having all these different quests and people have these different ideas and understandings of who this Jesus guy was, but like what access do we actually have to that? Because like mm-hmm. so maybe behind that like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the four gospels, and in that there's the words of Jesus. but like it, mm-hmm. I feel like that's Jesus's words according to Matthew or according to Mark right. or whatever. So like, do we have, like, do we actually have any kind of real access to Jesus from a historical perspective outside of, you know, whatever we want to talk about experientially and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. So, so well, okay. One, I would just say like, and I know, I know you know this, but if people ask this question, this is not, this is like a only after the enlightenment, do you ask this question question? Right. Like, so when every kid asks their parents, like, is that real? It's just when we ask that question today, when they ask, like, is Santa real? They don't mean it in the same way. Like like that, the real question is so shaped by what we mean by truth and an enlightenment context. Right. And but it's in that enlightenment context that historical uh, studies and stuff develop. Like when it comes to Jesus, um, like there's a number of things that most historians like agree on. Now, then they're going to interpret the things we can figure out historically. Uh, and you, you can ask me more after this, if you want like a detour into exactly how historians work, but we know more about Jesus than almost anyone else alive 
at, at the time he was. So we'll put that there's that. So when you hear like uh, the mythicist, like that, the atheist New Testament scholars think it's funny that people think Jesus didn't exist and was invented. Okay. So they're kind of drunk. So just don't worry about that part. But when it goes to uh, thinking about the historical Jesus, you have to, um, it, yes, there's multiple sources. Like you get Mark. Um, Mark was used by Matthew and Luke, but they also had access to a collection of sayings, uh, generally called the Q source, which may or may not have been written. There's arguments about that. Um, then you have the Gospel of John. There's also non-canonical Gospels, uh, most of which are written a lot later. Uh, so they are more likely to represent kind of expressions of different religious groups centering on Jesus, that more of them say Gnostics and all that kind of such. Um, but you get, uh, there's, you know, the little bit of reference in Josephus that may or may not have been doctored. People argue about that. It was probably doctored later. Uh, but in there, you also get references to James, Jesus's brother, and his relationship to uh, the temple, which was a lot more positive than Paul's. Why? Because James still thought you should get snipped, homeboy. You know, um, so the, the, that he was around did stuff pretty clear. Also, in these counter gospels uh, in the second century, written by uh, it, like, you know, post the introduction of the unsnipped, the uh, Gentiles, uh, Paul becoming dominant, then the Jewish churches that are, are synagogues that are forming a sense of Jewish identity post destruction of the temple. Um, when the temple goes, it's a lot harder to hold all these different Jewish groups together because the thing, the rituals that happened there uh, aren't there. So what happens? Uh, it, it turns to being located uh, in Torah, in the synagogue, much more uh, in the family. And before the destruction of the temple, you had like Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, you had zealots, uh, the Essenes. There's like a crowded neighborhood in our early Jews uh, that are also see Jesus as the Messiah, but they're still practicing Jews, right? Like this giant neighborhood of, of Jewish options. Once the destruction of the temple, it's like a hurricane comes through and there's not a lot left. And the two that end up flourishing later after the apocalyptic ones are killed off by the Romans um, in, in the battle, the big ones that leave a uh, Pharisaic Judaism turns into rabbinic Judaism uh, centered on the Torah um, and that kind of thing. And then you get uh, Christianity becoming a distinct religion over time. So like in that, uh, and as the Gentiles became dominant, you get then anti-gospels written uh, from a Jewish perspective. Now, what's fascinating about those is the second temple period or uh, at the end, of, after the second temple period, the second century, when you start to see these anti-gospels written, they're arguing uh, about different interpretations of things Jesus said, did, and endured, right? So it, as opposed to being like, we all know his body was there, and this is bunk. They're explaining like, no, it really was a gardener. Or, um, well, how did he do these miracles? Like one of them, how do you do it? Uh, he snuck into the Holy of Holies, wrote down the name of God, how to say it, cut his thigh, put it in his thigh, because when you go out of the Holy of Holies, you forget what's in there. And then he cuts open and he knew God's name. And that's how he did the miracles, right? Like, so the, a lot of the, the, the fights that took place um, in texts that we have are ones where it seems as if even the opponents wouldn't say Jesus didn't exist. They would say he didn't actually have the connection with God that a lot of his followers think, or the meaning of what he, his death and possible resurrection uh, don't mean what they say. 
or the consequences of it aren't this and that. Um, so when you look when when you kind of look at the historical stuff, you can uh, see these conversations like that. That existed. The other big things most New Testament scholars tend to agree on. Um, uh, he had 12 disciples and he did so intentionally connected to the 12 tribes. So he had some uh, self-conception of his mission and the communities forming about the restoration of Israel um, that he uh, uh, was baptized by John the Baptist. It's embarrassing to have your, your Christ baptized by someone else. And it happens in all the gospels and they explain it differently, right? Like he's cousins in one, uh, he doesn't hear or see anything in the other and the other G, John and in, in the gospel, of John's like, I can't, I just, I, I can't even, I can't even touch your feet, you know? Um, so all those are examples. Like he had some, he was baptized by John and these people that call him son of God are having to tell you why it makes no sense. Um, anyway, so um, you get that he taught about the kingdom of God. Um, and that was the primary uh, focus of his teachings. Um, and, and the, uh, most new Testament scholars will say that his, uh, the, his vision for the kingdom of God is one that was, uh, uniquely shaped by his understanding of God as parent, like Abba. Um, and that, uh, that his contemporaries recognized him to be a wonder worker, uh, of sorts, but, Again, if you put them in historical context, there are other Jewish uh, prophets um, that did healings and stuff. But like that, you can do them says something. Now, is he working for Satan or God? Like, you know, that's a debate people could have. But the the uh, um, the, the the fascinating and they all agree like he got executed by Rome uh, on a cross. Uh, if you read the Gospels, even the reason he gets executed it isn't consistent. Like, was it blasphemy or that kind of thing? Um, anyway, so uh, the, the in the events of the passion are also con, uh, there. So um, most think that the outline of the triumphal entry, the institution of the Eucharist, um, whether or not he did it like, you know, how is remembered, but some of the earliest things you get, uh, even pre-Gospels, Paul says, I hand down to you what was handed on to me in first Corinthians. And that's relatively early. Like you, someone might check this, but I think it's like 52 I think is Corinthians. So that means sometime around then he was already told this is what happened. And now he's telling you like, and hey, we all know this is what happened. Um, so there's that, like, so in that, in that framework, you can see that historians have to interpret Jesus in his historical context. Um, kind of second temple period Judaism. And then you're understanding the early churches wrestling with his identity uh, uh, takes a big shift and it becomes really a distinct religion after the destruction of the temple, the growth of Gentiles. Uh, and it's not until after the destruction of the temple that you get the uh, gospels uh, really being collected and such that we have. Um, there's debate around Jesus teaching of the kingdom of God about how uh, apocalyptic the shape of his teaching is. Um, there's debate about uh, his own self-understanding of his, of exactly his mission and his connection to God. But like, if you think, um, what can we really know? Like that the guy was uh, a Jewish prophet that had an intense religious experience 
at a baptism with John uh, that shaped the course of his ministry. And then in contrast to, say, even John, right, that sends him off, John's ministry was primarily like sitting outside of the city saying, come get right with God because junk's going to go down. Right? Like he has this apocalyptic fever. He talks junk to religious and political leaders, gets beheaded. Um, and he says, come and repent. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that John didn't even baptize you till you had fasted so long your skin was sagging. Like you had to look, you had to know you're a sinner. Then, then he'll baptize you, right? And like if you think of that being where Jesus, uh, uh, a very adult in this time, life expectancy 30, uh, has an experience of the divine. And then what does he, how does he differ from John? John stood on the outside, condemned, made you come demonstrate penance, and then you could, were baptized into uh, the, the kingdom of God. Jesus shows up, announces its arrival. That is for the sinners in the underside. Um, it, it's like you could see like uh, the contrast there being this is fascinating. Um, the the thing to me when I spent, you know, I talk about it in both my Jesus books, the historical Jesus stuff. The thing that I find most important is that historical studies forces us to recognize that our account of Jesus Christ is culturally captured and we have to wrestle with it. And there's no better way to, at least in, in my experience in congregations, to introduce a lot of that culture capture by just helping them understand Jesus in his own context, right? Like once you start to put those things together, then it's easy to see he wasn't uh, trying to form uh, bourgeois religion for empire. That's just not what he was up to. Um, and the people that got most uncomfortable were those that were successful in whatever religious game was being played. Like he kind of pisses off all the different religious groups. Uh, and so the historical Jesus things for me, asking the question about Jesus in the present um, uh, really helps you. Uh, it's kind of like a lens or a filter to go. When do I fill in the gaps with my own unexamined ideology and allegiance? That's called idolatry, right? But I think it happens. Like, and it's not vile. It's not mean. Like, think of this cup. Like, if I showed you this side, you saw there's two logos on each side. I show you this. When I ask you what's on the other side, you're going to go, well, it's a brew theology logo on a koozie in a coffee mug. And that's because that you're filling in all the gaps based on the world as you know it. Um, but if you just take what's given to you, you don't absolutely know that's the case. And I think Jesus is like that for lots of people. They they have this encounter and there's this encounter with Jesus and it can be life, life affirming and transformative. But then you go like, what else is there? Well, whatever's in the gaps, you're just filling in with what you call normal existence. This is how I was born in the world. This is all the stuff that I know is true. And you like start sticking it in uh, and filling in all the gaps. And, uh, uh, and, and so for me, part of the wrestling with, what do you do with Jesus when you're asking questions of scare quotes, deconstruction and such part of the historical Jesus is it helps you realize you've been filling in the gaps with your own privilege and your own power and what the things you want to preserve your chair's self-image of yourself. You're giving it to Jesus so that it never has to get uh, questioned. So the weirder Jesus is when you look at it in history is the becomes a kind of a auto deconstructive tool in a sense for 
uh, faith in the present. Um, so that was a long answer of what historians know followed by what I do with it. But um, yeah, no, I dig it, man. It was good. I, uh, yeah, I like it. And it's, um, it's helpful too. like the, the Jesus and Jesus's context, I think is huge. And then <clears throat> also, I think it's, it's fun too, then, because I guess what we see happening is like, because within the, within the text, like the gospel writers, they're, they're taking these experiences or whatever uh, with the historic Jesus. And then they're like theologizing about them and interpreting them and then like yeah. putting it forward. And so like, then when we have this, you know, the same thing with this, you know, the uh, encounter with, uh, with the Christ and then, you know, read about Jesus in the gospels or whatever. Um, I think having the context, like you're saying is, is important because when we don't, as we theologize about Jesus, like everybody does, and we interpret Jesus without that context, then that's how we make Jesus into all of these different things, which is what I think was at the heart of my question, because you have, you have people like Driscoll running around who's Jesus is like this, you know, fucking badass with the sword that's going to come like, like UFC fighter, Jesus. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Or then you, then you have like the, the Jesus that like I'm more drawn to, which is like this, uh, like nonviolent, like peace loving hippie guy kind of, uh, or like something in between, but then you have like the, the social justice warrior kind of Jesus. You have like these different, I don't know. And so I think getting down to the historic stuff, like you're saying is, is so key because then it can help you start to shed some of the, uh, preconceived notions that we already have and, and bring to the table especially growing up somewhere in like you know america in american evangelical christianity where their jesus is a very specific kind of jesus that like votes republican and you know likes the dallas cowboys or something <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but, yeah those are both questionable decisions oh for sure they're they're both questionable decisions but like <laughs> it's just cowboy that's beyond that's beyond (laughs) oh yeah well i'm a ravens fan so i can't say much about that but for me ice hockey is the way to go which i think if if there was ice like around where jesus lived then jesus would have played ice hockey that's a theological decision that i think well the thing is he uh, he tried to play hockey but he was the only one that could walk on the water and so it couldn't fill the team right it didn't work it didn't quite work Tried to get Pete to join. Didn't work out. And Peter failed. The first, <laughs> Peter just turned into a goon. He was the first, the first goon of, of the ice hockey. Couldn't skate, but he could fight and do stupid shit. <laughs> yeah. So you said something that I think is important. Um, is it part of, uh, part of, I think, getting a much more mature understanding of christianity and and wrestling with the question of jesus is realizing what the gospels actually are um i mean that they are theological narratives and they like they weren't written um like to to meet enlightenment understandings of objective history the gospels are testimonies to the one they've encountered uh in christ god like the object of faith is God. Like that's who we have faith in. Christians affirm that God was in Christ, reconciling the world, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
uh, when we call Jesus the son of God, like because the son tells us who the father is, right? Like all these images, but the one we have faith and trust in is God. Um, and and I think that there, that when you when you look at the gospels and you don't see them as uh, four stories that justify a set of perfect doctrines about Jesus, but as uh, authentic testimonies to the encounter with God uh, mediated by Jesus, then the gospels themselves become allies uh, in what we're doing. Um, in the early church, there was a heretic named Tatian, um, and he created a harmony gospel. And harmony gospels are like where you make all the parts work out so they fit perfectly. Like in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus cleanses the temple at the end. In John, he cleanses the temple at the very beginning of his ministry. Tatian's like, did it twice. Uh, you get Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. High quality material, like a traveling revival preacher borrows some of his best material, reworks it for, you know, like, like in, in Tasha's like, yeah, I'd probably gave both those sermons, right? And you get a healing experience and you're like, these are almost identical, but they definitely aren't the same one because it would, to be harmonious, we have to get all the parts aligned. Anyway, so, and, and you get them all aligned. What happens when you take these four different gospels and harmonize them? All of a sudden, what does it mean to believe the gospel is to believe that there's this harmonious, perfectly woven narrative. And you're like, finally, we have the object of faith. We have the story. This is true. We're going to assert it. Um, now, that he was condemned as a heretic wasn't because the Har harmony gospel wasn't popular. It was hugely popular. He was condemned as a heretic because that's not even what the gospels are doing. The gospels are testimonies about the encounter with God mediated by Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they each come from different communities. What does it like to encounter the risen Christ in those spaces, in those places, in those communities? And then what is it like to tell the story of Jesus from the presence of the risen Christ in the community? They tell these stories and they sound and look different. Matthew, super Jewish. Luke, not so much, right? Like you start going to a Mark's much more apocalyptic, but homeboy wrote it right after the destruction of a temple that like, you know, like if you go and just read my sermons right after things that were apocalypse, like after nine 11, or, you know, these type of things, it's going to charge things in particular ways. And you know why? Because you wrestle with the story of Jesus. If you're a Christian about being faithful in the present. So the, like when we don't harmonize them and insist uh, that, that they, uh, they tell one story, uh, then they they're helpful. And oddly enough, Tatian was condemned, but we came up with a new way of doing the same thing. We, we define ourselves, especially Protestants, by our theological conclusions. Here's what we believe. Then we go to the gospel and, we're, and we figure out how the text we're reading affirm what we believe. And it's not, it's not mean. Like, we're not being mean. We're, we're helping Matthew tell us the truth. And he hadn't cultivated the doctrine of the Trinity yet. And so if you were going to have our doctrine of the Trinity or my tribe's atonement theory or my weird position on eschatology, like then once you know these things are true because you've deduced them rationally on enlightenment terms, you're just discovering an interpretation that lets the text say what it always should have said. And 
you're doing the same thing Tation did. You're making the object, uh, the, 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 the flattened, perfectly organized system, the object of faith and not the stories. And I think um, we're at a time where we need the voices of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that were all canonized by the church to be justifications for including the diversity of voices in our congregations and those on the margins that experience with God doesn't equal whatever the church's official faith statement is. Because Mark ends a gospel, Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there may be a resurrection attached to it, depending on where the ending actually was. And uh, what was it say uh, that the woman uh, that they encounter the risen Christ uh, was full of fear and didn't tell anyone. And you're like, well, it is written down in the gospel. But uh, it, so that's very different than you get in the gospel of John, where Jesus comes back and is like coaching up Peter, right? You got to feed my sheep. All right. You know, um, anyway, I, I just say all that because they have different they have different Christologies at the heart of all four gospels, but they're all canonized and they're in there. What? Why can't we have congregations that make enough space for people that do the I'm scared and fearful of this thing that may or may not happen. I don't understand. And I don't know how to tell anyone to John, who's just like in the beginning. Yeah, was the word. And boom, shakalaka. It rocked it. Jesus was so much the word up in this piece. He was on the cross. They were like, we're trying to kill you. And he's like, nah, check this. It is finished. Bow the head. Right. Cosmos shakes. Um, like they're not this. Like if you were trying to work out how it went down and you thought they're going to line up, doesn't even get killed on the same day. Like, so it's like, uh, uh, we're really missing the point. But if you canonize different Christologies that tell the, their encounter with Christ differently, and these gospels are coming from different parts of the early church, different communities, that I think that's really a model for us thinking about what is it like to encounter Christ today. Um, and, and in fact, one of the biggest challenges we have uh, in the West um, is uh, recognizing that there are cultures that don't ask the same questions, Eurocentric peeps ask, and they encountered the risen Christ and are like, uh, if y'all noticed some blind spots, I don't want to be picky here, but somehow you were rocking team Jesus from empire to empire until you colonized the globe. Uh, have, you, have you considered it just hypothetically? You know, um, you get pushback from the, so the I think that this the New Testament itself shows us uh, that there is a greater multiplicity of Christ um, within the tradition than are often permitted. And I think the the thing that fear point of like, do I ask the Jesus questions and all that stuff is connected to. Uh, the authority traditions, specifically Protestant ones, uh, do it the worst by having a final interpretation of justification and sanctification and the incarnation. And then they read everything in scripture through it. Uh, and so if you ask a different question, you get in trouble. But Mark would get in trouble. Like, I, w w Mark, no virgin conception, really scant on the resurrection there. Uh, and Jesus very concerned about the end of the world. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, anyway, so the, there, there are people in scripture 
who would make a lot of the congregations where people are deciding whether or not they're allowed to ask questions or whether they should stay or go. Um, they're allies, just, you know, even the King James version. Or... Yeah. So like, perhaps then, <clears throat> excuse me, perhaps then my question uh, that I posed with Jesus Collective uh, was the wrong question, asking which Jesus, as if we have to nail down just this one Jesus, and that's, that's then going to be the lens. Um, because maybe rather it's, it's important to celebrate the, the, the diversity, uh, you know, like you said, throughout the, the gospels. And then that makes me think then like <clears throat> today, I mean, I guess it's what we do anyway, but like, we have to then take this experience we have with, with the risen Jesus and theologize it, bring it into our context so that it can speak today. Um, which is, like I said, that's what we do anyway, but people, <sighs> Like, can we do, do you think we can do what like New Testament authors did and like what Jesus appears to do in the text where they're like pulling shit from the Old Testament, making it mean different stuff? <clears throat> like, is that a part of this like ongoing thing? Like, can we take like, what, is there a line? Maybe there's not. Like, can we, how far can we go with this theologizing Jesus stuff? Like where, do you, yeah. do you see what I mean? Does that question yeah, make well, sense? No, no, I, okay, well here's what here let me ask the question back to you and you tell me if this is helpful like like when one recognizes that there is a historical jesus and a multitude of christ and they and there's a multitude of testimonies to different christ even in scripture then well yeah yeah we're always doing that as well but like then what's normative and what are the limits and what are the boundaries for when you start doing this? Because, uh, uh, you know, are we like three steps from, you know, I, I was holding my puppy dog and the eyes of Christ came through and I had a dog biscuit for communion, you know, like, I mean, yes, that's a sarcastic example, but like, I do think that question of then like what's normative and what are boundaries or one's, Anyone who's leaving behind how freeing it is to know you have the answer and to know what the boundary is. Like the moment you're like, yeah, actually there's like a deep responsibility and accountability of being a community of Christ followers is that you are giving life to Christ in the present. Like you're part of the body of Christ. Like part of your task is receiving a tradition and handing it on in a living way. Right. And, and I think that's like an important question to pause over. Is that capturing like the, the fear part? Yeah, I think, I think that's good. Cause then, then you have like, what, what I think is important is, is you get into these communities, like you get like liberation theology and such where mm -hmm. you have these uh, like various um, people groups encountering the risen Christ and then like sharing that experience from their, their perspective which we see happening within the pages of scripture, but then people for whatever reason get all uncomfortable and are like, Whoa, like black theology, that's weird. We can't do that. Or like, you know, queer theology, whatever. But it's like, that's exactly, I guess what I'm asking, like, that's literally exactly what we see happening within the pages of scripture itself. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, so I know. Like, we should just like, Oh, I don't know. Okay. So two things about that, that uh, strike me. Um, this is like that moment where, uh, my like conservative friends that like, I guess, hate listen to the podcast and then text me their thoughts, but you know, even friends a long time, you know, 
Um, you may have some of these. Uh, where this is where I'm going to get that text message. It's like, but don't don't you remember in Hebrews? He's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Right? Like I just I'm like hearing that, and this is one of those times where I just want to say explain the superiority of process thought or open and relational thought. What does it mean to be the same yesterday, today, and forever if the dominant category is being? It means that the superiority is changelessness, and that requires you to have an account of the gospel that is good news to all people at all times in all places, as if Jesus even said the same thing to people. If you were rich, selfish, uh, trying to cover it up, then Jesus gave you a different word than if you're a woman uh, caught in adultery or if you, anyway, I don't have to go like excursus. So the same yesterday and today and forever is different if the category is being, then it is precisely by having a final, absolute, unchangeable, settled account that, that that's accomplished. Now, if becoming is in your category, then you ask, what does it mean to be the same yesterday, today and forever? Well, if God is love, there are things that are precisely because God is the same, the loving one Jesus calls Abba. That means that part of being the same means showing up in love, and love is shaped by the, 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 the subject of your love. That's not complicated. Like, I'm, I hope my kids go, dad was usually the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that meant he was a better dad when I was 16 because he didn't change my diaper. Right, but like when they're two and you're potty training, you touch poop. When you're 16, it's going to have to be a medical crisis or something like that. That uh, Anyway, you see what I'm saying? So like once you go, what is the same yesterday, today and forever? And then you think of the Christ for the Christian tradition. Like when we have all these cosmic imagery in the Pauline text or in John and all this kind of stuff. When we talk about the, or the image of the cosmic Christ, what we're saying is like the generative invitation to deeper participation in the divine life that we see expressed, given image in Jesus. Like that, that, that part of reality is always a part of every moment. It was, the, it was there in the beginning. It is here now. And God promises to give you the invitation to participate in the creative transformation of God in the future. Christians, we call that the Christ. We encountered it in Jesus, and it's normative. And this is the normative thing because we, it's above our pay grade to have complete access and understanding of this. In fact, our encounter with the divine came precisely mediated by this. We were baptized into it. We're nourished at the table. We wrestle with these text and these traditions because it cultivates God's encounter, um, that God's coming today. And then pr- that same uh, model for tomorrow. So I, I, I just think that this is one of those uh, situations where uh, shifting what, how we understand perfection really opens us up to then look at the history of Jesus, the New Testament, the church wrestling with it, and our church history, right? Um, I don't like Anselm's account of the atonement. But in his historical context, it is actually rather brilliant. What does he do? I can't go back in time and tell him his honor code is stupid and packed full of patriarchy and hierarchy. I can't. But if you just look at it in his own context, what he's saying is that the incarnation is an explanation that God has refused to be God without us. And I talk about this in a book. And 
uh, uh, but that's the summary. Like if you, if you go like, what was, what was the deep commitment for Ansem? The guy that came up with, you know, <laughs> the atonement theory that Calvin made worse. Anyway, the, the, it, but underneath it is he, his historical situated cultural context involves this, uh, uh, the uh, the kind of a feudal system, notions of hierarchy and shame, but in it, then what is Jesus telling us about who God is? God is the infinite God of love who's refused to be God without us. Now, I can go, hell yeah, and not feel the need to introduce congregants to feudal systems, shame, and honor system in order to tell them the good news that the one who was flesh in Jesus chose solidarity with the underside and gave God's promise on the other side of death has refused to be God without him. That, that is still true. I would not use the same cultural language to do it because you're going to get this situation. Well, I have a hard enough time believing in God. Now you're going to tell me that God's like subject to some rules where God has to like do something to forgive you and can't just forgive you. Like this seems really weird. And like, why would you set up rules this set up for you start to have this discussion. And what is that distracting you from? The fact that Anselm, those were not, that was their world. He's literally telling you God has refused to be God without you. Why did God become man? Hero Deus homo, right? Because God refused to be God without you. And if you recognize that, you'll know that the one we encounter in Christ is one that knows your name, knows your face and cares. God's refused to be God without you. And in order to demonstrate that, God chose solidarity with all of our brokenness, all of our poor habits connected to our finitude, the way our tribe, like go, go through the list. That's beautiful and compelling. You may not believe it's true, but it doesn't sidetrack you on weird things. But if you're in the tribe, like, and you're a scholar, then I read, I'm reading him and going, oh, that's, I can see the beauty it's in it. And what does it mean for that to be true today, like it was then? Does it mean I have to convince them of Anselm's historical context being the opportune time for us finally to understand the meaning of the cross? Or does it mean um, that a part of inheriting the tradition is making it the same today in its relational dynamic? The affirmation of being the invitation to a grace excess in walking in new depths of fidelity. And I think that shift from uh, being to becoming gives us a way to see what the gospel writers, the early church and the churches continue to do. And that means that today, when we recognize growing numbers of Christians, right, that are walking away because of the political institutional baggage that we talked about at the beginning, right? Like they're like, I was on team Jesus. And then like half my church are sharing QAnon uh, memes in lockdown and talking to Mike Trump one, right? And they're like, I'm out. Right. Like, so like when you're in that situation and that uh, intense experience, didn't think of the, the, the protest after George Floyd, all these kinds of things put for like the culture dominant white Christianity of, of the West put before them uh, the inability to excuse yourself when it goes to asking questions of power and empire and racism and white supremacy and the hair, the, the legacy of colonialism and all those kinds of things. So like one, when those get raised, all of a sudden, who, why should we not trust deeply the intuitions of the, of the other parts of the church we've silenced and ignored when they tell us the good news? Why would we not take seriously the black church, which has saved American democracy alone with 
be, uh, they should just the, the, the like pres- made possible a Christianity on the other side of white supremacy. When you think of just how complicit Christianity was um, with uh, so much of the ugliness around race in the United States. So the, the, then we, we're growingly aware um, about our connections economically around uh, the globe, both in the destruction of the planet and the pillaging of the poor. Um, as you're doing that, it, would it not help us to take seriously communities of, of people, the base communities of where liberation theology was born, that are thinking about the scriptures being birthed and lived faithfully in their context? And then ask ourselves, if these people's bodies are being put on crosses today, where does our allegiance lie? That's a beautiful question. It makes me uncomfortable. I'm not sure. I'm significantly better for having lost sleep about it. But the idea that we're going to say Jesus is my Savior and Lord and then not take seriously those who die cross dead today's testimony to God, like, like I think that it's important. But see, what keeps us from doing that so often is our vision of God has to be complete, final, certain closure, um, that God has to be the same. And, and what does that mean? That the c- deepest convictions of, uh, <laughs> of the religion that do- came to dominate most of the globe uh, had it figured out when they were do- coming to dominate the globe and are now here to tell those who are on the underside uh, what they should think when they finish their theology class. Really, that makes no sense. Like it just on the face of it. Um, and so for a lot of those who are waking up to the way, right? Like when I gave the example of filling in the gaps of Jesus, that a lot of the things that were filling in the gaps of Jesus, like the backside of the cup you can't see, was uh, things they did. This isn't personal. That they in the structurally, they filled it in with institutions that hold white supremacy and racism. They filled it in with the logic of consumer capitalism. They filled it in with the assumption that the military-industrial complex set up post-World War II is the only vibrant option for a future on the globe. It fills it in with all these other commitments that preserve us and our status and our place and our normal. And what happens when our brothers and sisters in Christ testify to a vision that's not compatible with the unexamined ideologies uh, that are there. That's an, I think, an invitation to greater fidelity, not like a time to correct them and be like, obviously, you haven't read, read Wayne Grudem yet. Um, because like you start asking questions like that, you'll end up a crazy liberal heretic like Beth Moore, you know. Um, so it, is that helpful? Like I. You, it's it's insanely helpful, Trip. Yeah. And it, it to it, it's it's helping like put language uh and like help me think through like an experience i've been having more recently because um things think the kind of questions i used to ask and things that i used to care about in regards to like jesus stuff and theology around jesus like the atonement and stuff like that i'm like i've lost interest in those questions but i think it's like i don't want to explain it like the for me something so like the, you know, process view, uh, the, the cosmic Christ, all that kind of stuff um, is like, I love it. That's where, where I hang my hat. That's where I feel most comfortable. 
but then it becomes the incarnation for me becomes the most important thing. And like, I get the incarnation. Uh, and once I have the incarnation, like the Christ revealed in the person of Jesus, then it's like, okay, God is, is like, that's, that's where the magic is for me, I guess. Like God is fully identifying with humanity and like, I'm a human. So that, that's pretty cool. That must mean that humans are somehow uh, important in this whole cosmic game. Uh, but then it starts to, to like, I start, I lost interest in like asking the atomic question. Like I used to, that's, I used to care about that so much. Like that was the question I was asking. I was like, well, PSA sucks. Maybe it's crisis Victor. Okay. Well, I don't like how, like, that's too, uh, like woo woo with all the demons and Satan and stuff like that. So like, eventually it just, like, I started, I started to lose interest and then I used to be super interested and care about the question of like, how, like, was it, you know, uh, eternal conscious torment? Is it annihilation? Is it, you know, universal salvation? And then that question became like, well, I don't even know what it means to go to heaven when I die. And I also don't know what practical implication telling everybody that they go to heaven when they die has, like, what does that do? So like, it became this more, uh, more, uh, incarnated universalism, like this, this idea that, uh, all of creation is within the divine flow or within this, this cosmic Christ or whatever. And, uh, because of that, everything is inherently valuable and like all people, all of creation, uh, all of these things. And so now this like more, uh, like practical universalism, that's more so about like we have like a lack of awareness to it but it's always been true um like that that gets me really excited but then i guess <laughs> where where that starts to like weird me out was then with like the historical jesus stuff like so i don't know but do, do you see what i'm saying like i you're you're putting language to something that i like i don't i don't know why some of the things that I used to really care about, I don't anymore, or I don't, maybe I wouldn't say it that way. Uh, they just seem less important because now I have this bigger image of yeah. who this Christ is. And somehow that Christ was uniquely mm -hmm. manifested in the, in the person of Jesus, or at least I'll make that as a statement of faith. And uh, hopefully that changes how I live my life. And uh like if you know hopefully other people somehow can get that message to that everything really is connected um and somehow within this this divine flow then like that could that has the power to change the world far more mm -hmm. than like you're a piece of shit and jesus died on the cross for your sins like that's a, that's <laughs> no, not I mean, that's that, a lame it's message really not now. bringing people to the yard <laughs> yeah do you see what i'm saying though yeah it's like that that's like massive. That's so much bigger. That's so much better news. It's like, I just rambled. Yeah. I didn't ask. No, no, no. Okay. And actually, <laughs> I, I think that like that response, like picks, I mean, it really picks up what we were talking about, right? Like how then do you relate? Um, like, how do you relate to this, uh, this, like the, the ongoing flux of becoming when it like part of your identity, right? Like where you're situated is, uh, because you've been connected uh, to Jesus historically and then all the work of the risen Christ through that history uh, for for good and ill. Um, 
I think part of it is how you negotiate a religious tradition. And one of the things I think of it, I'll give us an example of how Jesus is normative um, is he actually gives us a model, I think, of how you receive and hand on a tradition. Um, like, uh, for example, this is Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide those who mourn in Zion. Now, Jesus was asked to read this text in his first sermon. Uh, like, I guess it was like, you know, Youth Sunday of sorts. Um, in Nazareth, and he was handed the scroll, and here's what he said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus received the tradition in its ritual space, is participating in it, and then he freaking edits it. And how did he edit it? He cut out. You notice what was left out. Well, God's vengeance has gone. He cut it. And then he cuts out the references to what? Nationalism to Zion and uh, kind of tribal inclusivism. And if that didn't make it worse, because the text goes, you know, he rolled it up, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes are all on him. Um, and he goes, today it's fulfilled in your hearing. And they were like, oh, wow. Hey, Joe's kids pretty good here doing good. And then he, it's like he's worried they aren't pissed yet. Um, He's like, I thought if I tinkered with the Bible, I'd get upset. And then he goes, do you remember? And uh, he gives uh, two stories, right, where Jewish prophets in times of crisis attend to Gentiles. And he goes, I just want to clarify what I was meaning, right? And then it says he tried to jump, throw him off the cliff, uh, and he sneaked away. <laughs> um, but I say that because, right, like part of what a living tradition is, uh, is one, a gift. You are given better questions than you'll ever ask on your own. If you don't have someone to talk with, you don't have a space for these big questions to come up. You don't have narratives to frame transitions and help you recognize beauty and injustice, all these kinds of things, right? So a tradition gives you rhythms, rituals, stories, all these kinds of things. It has a wisdom in it because it actually was something that has done more blessing than cursing to the people that are handing it to you, right? And Jesus receives it. And we know what kind of version he got because we hear about his mom. His mom, kind of a proto-Marxist, right? I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. She's pregnant, finds out. Uh, like you, you gets confirmation, John, the Baptist jumping in the uh, belly uh, and, and trying to give some daps to the cousin. And Elizabeth is like, Oh, this is, you know, <laughs> look at this favorite body. And Mary's like, that's right. Going to tear down some thrones, fill up the valleys. Like this big picture of like, let us bring the justice to the material world that God has desired. And my son's going to be a part of that. Boom shakalaka. Right. If that's, and that's threads all through the Bible. It's, it's a live part of the Hebrew tradition. So he's receiving the tradition in a home that recognizes that for God to be the good, loving, just God, the material world has to change to reflect God's goodness. That, that the biggest challenge to the reality of God's character is the immorality of, uh, of our relations. And the Christ is an invitation 
right? Uh, it, for her, that she sees Christ as part of God's response to this. Then Jesus does the same thing here. He receives the tradition, but he cuts out the tribalism and the vengeance, and he extends where the blessing goes, recovery of sight to the blind, all this kind of thing. Proclaim the year of Jubilee, forgiveness of debts, um, and then go, today is where this is happening. Let's get doing it, right? So the, I think that um, the, that same kind of framework is important for us to think about how we deal with our own faith. When we ask questions of boundaries and inclusion, when we ask questions of when animus that's preserved in our tradition versus emphasis on justice and reconciliation and, uh, and such. And that picture of Jesus is exactly what his disciples did with what he said. If you go reading Jesus, uh, there's nothing about Jesus that makes you think homeboys down for you not getting snipped. Um, Jesus loved Torah, right? Like he's wrestling with it, but he's still very Jewish. By the time you get done with Acts, uh, like Peter, Jesus's disciple, had a had to get haunted into getting over his biblical literalism, right? Like he gets haunted, like you're gonna go eat with some Gentiles, and Pete's like, This is a trick question, Jesus. I know we have to pray about this. He goes and takes a nap, get a uh, the, the sheet comes down, all these unclean food. Uh, take and eat. Pete's like <laughs> Leviticus 13, 8, right? Like you can just hear him. He's like, I'm a Bible drill champ. You aren't fooling me. I can see the winged hooves on that, you know, uh, has to happen the dream multiple times. And then what happens? He sees the activity of this spirit and he goes, we cannot quote Bible verses when the spirit of God is, is alive here. Our theology should accommodate to catch up with the spirit. Right. And so you see it, uh, um, uh, the same thing kind of happens with the story of the eunuch. The same you could go through uh, Acts and see that this is going on. Then you ask yourself, I don't know, what does it mean for Jesus, the Christ, to be the same yesterday, today, and forever? Is it because I should project back on Matthew's very Jewish testimony of Jesus an opinion that he actually says the opposite of? Like I ain't changing a vowel marker in the Torah, or? Do you, I don't know, basic Christian doctrine here, say that the resurrected Christ is what we're being baptized into and we're a part of it, that we are baptized into Christ, not a metaphor, um, that we ha are to have the mind of Christ. Well, if that's the case, then the, the story of Israel, the story of the early church are these stories of collectives, of people being shaped and then reshaping their encounter with the divine. Infidelity means receiving the blessings of your tradition and also uh, taking the wisdom of the prophets of your tradition to push back against them. And as Gentiles, Jesus is our invitation uh, to join in God's deep covenantal fidelity with the history of this world. And what does that look like? Well, it means it looks something like you're, you are trusted enough by the tradition to be handed the text in synagogue, and you're confident enough in the God you've encountered to cut the violence, to cut the tribalism and extend the blessing and God's desire for justice. And then say, hey, that's what we're doing, right? And then after that text, like if you take where that is, timeline-wise, 10 years later, his own disciples are going, historical Jesus was wrong because the risen Christ is right. And that's in the New Testament right? The switching on, uh, on inclusion of the Gentile. Um, and there's other features. If you, you know, 
had a five hour podcast. But I give that as an example because a lot of times people have these intuitions. They're like, maybe the church shouldn't like be horrible to my trans friend. Or like, why, why are we on, why are we vague about like not killing the planet? Um, or like you, you can at least understand, right? Like where the Black Lives Matter movement's coming from, right? Like you get, I mean, I'm not saying you, you have to, you know, whenever right-wing people tell you about Black Lives Matter, I'm like, that they're a neo-Marxist group out to destroy the nuclear family. And I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, and Joe Biden's a socialist. All right. But uh, the, the, uh, the, but I say all that just because, like, like when you, uh, when you what if what if the actual presence of Christ in you means that you go what I was handed isn't fit for the living spirit today? Well, I'm telling you, I think Jesus gives us a model. I think the church then in Acts shows us a model that part of being faithful means uh, receiving the tradition and then parsing it on behalf of the one who seized you and calls you, and that. Then, right, like the same yesterday, today, and forever is to join the flux of becoming on behalf of the movement of the spirit, not uh, to isolate one moment in history or one expression in a text and then go, oh, conclusion. Now I'm going to go assess everything by it. Because uh, a lot of people I know that like have the, the, the uh, issues like around ethical issues and are like, well, I follow Jesus, but I'm not sure about his followers and all these kind of things. What if like their conscience that that is provoking it is actually the spirit of God? But like that's literally what happens in Acts is there are individuals who are Christians and then they're like, well, maybe we should not be so compliant with white nationalism. And they're like, that's not biblical doctrine, you know, but uh, but what you discover in Acts is that, that the presence of the spirit and the activity of the spirit ultimately wins out against the preserving um, uh, and conserving the worst parts of a tradition, namely its boundaries, the way it excludes uh, images of, uh, of the God of God that aren't even as nice as Jesus, those kind of things. Yeah, uh, no, dude, I, um, I dig it. And I think that like, that's, that's like the, 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 the practical, like here and now, kind of like incarnational Christianity that I think uh, like, that's like where I find myself. Like that's it had, like for me, I feel like it has to be that like it, mm-hmm. it the, and like, I guess, cause the, like before the, the first kind of Christianity I was handed is, is not that it, right. It's, it's the go to heaven when you die kind of thing. Um, and like that, the disconnect. Um, I mean, I, I guess like, I don't know where that the the disconnect uh comes from but i guess uh i mean it seems to be there because like what you're saying some people would uh, and like obviously would be like oh they it would be very uncomfortable right that that's crazy but i don't i don't see how it could be any other way like i think if christianity is going to continue uh and like still be a thing that's a, a a force in the world that is good and beautiful and true and the body of Christ is going to continue to exist. It has to be a body that literally is the body of Christ that mm-hmm. is behaving the way that the Christ, you know, that Jesus would behave in the world. And it's not so much about like this 
go to heaven when you die or like here's my my posse of you know white christian nationalists whatever um i don't know i'm i'm just trying to process in in real time i don't i don't have much of a thought um but i think one of the one of the challenges um is that our institutions especially in um western christianity so many of our institutions uh part of how we became distinct especially in american religion uh we invented all the more and more more and more denominations and each denomination was like finally we're getting back to biblical christianity you know and all that kind of stuff and so the it's like the dna of so much of protestantism um is like a desire for certainty and finality um and the the true believers that run those things are really different than the people that go to them right like so i i think the institutional transitions knock is harder than the individual right so you and i were uh grow up in a denomination right and you get ordained and you're serving in a denomination and most of the people around you in those denominations wonder where they grew up in that denomination. If you ask them, you're like, why are you Baptist? Why are you Methodist? Why are you whatever? They're like, oh, this is great. Insert cool facts from history I learned in confirmation. And they bring it up every year on the birth date of the Protestant reformer. We like the best because he's that awesome. And it's almost always a he, unless you're Quaker. But Quakers, we aren't sure they're really Christian because they don't proclaim the gospel all the time. They're like Catholics, you know, and the, the, you get in this like weird thing. Like the true believers are the ones in charge of so many of the denominations and institutions because that's who gets advanced. Like the ones that are like, yep, being this Baptist. Like think of the Baptists. They, they kicked out all these Baptists back. My, my parents and family got kicked out of Southern Baptist Convention, um, you know, because women. Uh, and then they were like, now they're like eating each other. Uh, you can't even out fundamentalist the other ones. And they're like, oh, you got to be even more Calvinist. And oh, no. Uh, you know, a woman served the Eucharist, watch out. Uh, they, once you get into that framework, right, the ones at the institutional level are the ones that are so committed to that identity that made sense 150 years ago when the denominations are emerging and flourishing in America. But the, even our congregations now, like I worked at a UCC and a disciples church. Uh, I think 10, 15% of that church have always gone to the same denomination. The rest, they kind of don't pick a church that way. And then you're like joining the church and you're like, so we're what? And what they really want to know is like, like how, like, what are the deep values of the church and how is it expressed in worship? And uh, if you have kids, like, how's that going to work out? Um, all that kind of stuff. They don't think in these brands. And I think a lot of our institutions are so poorly organized and our clergy are so attached to advancement and security schemes that are attached to brand loyalty. Um, it's like we're running around thinking people should only get hamburgers at In-N-Out or McDonald's or whatnot. And then everyone else is like, nah, it depends on what tastes good when I'm hungry. And, uh, and so the, the, a lot of the shifts, I think we're looking for communities and we don't have a religious institutional structure that actually is encouraging communities to be formed around deep values. And so you have the consumer, you know, in scare quotes, uh, feeling like they have to go fill all these things out and find the right place. And if they get tired of looking, they may not find the right place and all that kind of stuff. But individuals in the 
that aren't clergy, I think are much more flex on figuring this stuff out and what Christian identity looks like. But our institutions are, are wed to internal identities and have true believers in charge. So there's like a mismatch of, of, of the, the kind of questions and seeking people are having and the, the, the kind of leaders and communities that are being formed by institutions built for 100 years ago. Yeah, and that, um, yeah, and that, like, that, that certainty and, like, this is how it is and, you know, our, our institution is right, I think largely then, you know, to our whole conversation misses the point. Um, like, it, it seems like it's, it's, it's much more about, like, wisdom. And wisdom does not, wisdom doesn't look the same, like, every day. Like, wisdom changes depending on, like you're saying, the situation you're mm-hmm. in, the context that you're in. And it's now it's based off of something. There's there's a true anchor there that is anchoring this wisdom point. And for Christians, we'd say that's Jesus or the Christ. Um, but then like that, that can be spooky, right? Because then you don't have you don't have all the answers. There's no like now here's the guidebook. Here's what to do in all of these exact situations. Yeah. And then when we try to do that, it just kind of like like breaks the whole thing, which is why I get freaked out when like there's a like within this whole deconstruction thing going on right now, there's like a movement of people that are like, Oh, well, if only, and I mean, this is a bunch of different movements of people, but it's like, if only you understood what real Christianity was, if only you knew the true gospel, then like, then you'd be good. Like all this other shit is just some hijacked version. If only you had our version, then you'll be fine. But like, there's a flaw in that because I think that's, that's, helpful and probably people have the right heart in doing that but at the same time as soon as you take it and and codify it you kill it and it no longer is a living tradition it's no longer about it's no longer about becoming uh like you're saying it's Mm -hmm. like uh taking a a bucket like a stream and dipping a bucket into that stream and, and pulling out a bucket of water and now saying oh this is the stream in the bucket like well no it's like a part of it maybe or obviously it is a part of it, but it's like, it's not the whole thing and you killed it. Um, so I don't know. I think, yeah, I, maybe this Jesus well, thing is, is it a is part of a like stream that stream. not streaming. Right. Know? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that's how the whole Jesus thing is. Jesus is like that stream. It's this ongoing process. Wink. Uh, yeah. You, you know, know, and, 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 uh, you know, John Cobb in Christ in a pluralistic age, um, you know, where, you know, one of the things he's wrestling within it is bit was he was one of the first theologians to engage in deep East West dialogue, wrote multiple books about it. Um, but then thinking about Christology and like, a, a, like the more cosmic picture, um, what happens when you realize that the story of Christian exclusivism was always connected to the story of Christian colonialism and, when you look at the history of the church, it's hard not to notice that we've expanded empires. And then once we get new technologies, expand them again. And then we come up, come up, but like we, we find within our traditions, right. Justifications uh, for encountering the other and assimilating. Uh, And that includes to our religion, but also to uh, assimilating people into like the world trade organization, world bank, the same kind of thing functions today. Um, that the West and it's it wants people to participate in the systems where it comes in with the authority and the power uh, 
um, that it's already accumulated, right? And so it works to get get that to be the case. So, with like when we see those kind of habits, it's just a bit weird, I think, not to like take a deep breath and go, um, like maybe Christendom capture has taken place when it comes to the Christ, and they what do you do with it, right? So John looks back at the Logos pictures, the cosmic hymns and Colossians and things, and goes like, if the story of history is not just going to be the story of Christendom's capturing everything, right? Then how do you understand the invitation that Christians experience as participation uh, in Christ, taking on the mind of Christ and all that kind of thing? Well, the, the our tradition already has said that what was at work and enfleshed in Jesus and we participate in the life of the church is the principle of reason and generative possibility in the cosmos. Um, and when you look at that principle, not so much as something that's settled, but something that invites or lures moment to moment, then the Christ uh, is, is the principle of creative transformation. That in every moment, the mind of Christ desires to be materialized, if you're using you know, Christian language. Um, in Jesus, uh, the word became flesh, right? And so, like we've discussed earlier, it's normative and, uh, and gives us models for even thinking of how we inherit and participate in. Um, but unless you're willing to say that the horizon of the church should be the ultimate horizon of the universe, then you have to ask yourself, how was what was present and active and revealed in an incarnated definitive way in Jesus? How is that expressed elsewhere? Uh, what does it look like if this invitation is a, is the dignity of being a creature of God moment to moment? Then the Christ becomes creative transformation, and then you go to recognize it, its presence and activity in other places. One, right, conversations around science and stuff, and you can see, like, you aren't going to use, like, religious language when you're thinking about uh, the emergence of life from uh, um, a, a diversity of chemicals or uh, the like the development of of what we know as solid state you know solid state classical physics um, after a quantum fluctuation in a vacuum um, and it, you know like but creative transformation make help is a way of thinking about that uh, and um, uh, but then you go and then you're like how do you deal with other wisdom traditions what if other wisdom traditions other religious traditions do for us uh, that we experience as we participate in the mind of Christ what if they function in similar ways. Because the God who was always present, active, and calling us in this tradition is always present and active and calling like every freaking creature in every moment. And it's not like we're saying this not as a Christian. We're saying like, look at our history. Who, who is God? God is the one who's refused to be God without us. I know Anselm told me. And in fact, in the Hebrew scriptures, what's God? The one that covenants. And then what is the context of that relationship? The relationship with God uh, in Israel is, is it it gets the clarity is gained over time. Wisdom is preserved over time. Micah did not show up the week after Abraham and Sarah said yes. It was only in the context of ongoing relationship that then you have the context for uh, have you really you're charging interest on Sabbath and you want me to show up at your worship service? Come on, come on, you know. That doesn't make sense until outside this whole the whole story. So, like when you look at 
how that tradition functions. You look at how he discussed like uh, uh, Gentiles receiving the gift, of, uh, the, the, the legacy, right, of Israel um, and uh, in the early church. It becomes this distinct religion. You could see them wrestling with it and even leaving behind things historical Jesus said because they're faithful to the risen Christ. Then you see creative transformation like as a way of looking at the history. So if you look at how we've just our story, uh, today, looking back at the history of the church all the way, uh, thinking through the history of Israel, and then go, what is something we know about God? God was invested deeply in our history and situations and stories. God comes to us exactly where we find ourselves and promises us more than that through an invitation, a call to participate more deeply in the liberating and life-giving love of God. And then you encounter, and this is John, God, encounter uh, a Buddhist who starts to share you wisdom. And this wisdom is one that's been discovered in a, in, in a tradition, Hinduism, right? That then is, uh, takes a new form uh, through the teachings and practices of the Buddha. And then there's a multiplicity of Buddhisms and he's primarily dialoguing with Pure Land Buddhism. Um, and that these traditions contain wisdom because these are the stories, rituals, practices, and ideas in which these uh, individuals and collectives came to tell the next generation, this is the wisdom you trust. This is the place you come to inherit the wisdom of campfires, eons upon eons, right? And then the, that it's precisely because it, it gave wisdom uh, that it's preserved and passed on again. Because we don't know what we're doing. Like sit around a campfire, stare up, and you're like, WTF, right? Like, what do we do? And wisdom traditions, uh, if you start to think in an open and relational framework, are the fruit of God coming to each tradition, each person, each community where they are, and then going, what is the beautiful thing in the next moment? And now, right, like, if you think that, right, like, then John's like, creative transformation is always going on. This is how Christians think of it. I'm a Christian theologian, Johnson, right? Uh, then you have to ask yourself, what? What do we get when we realize that our traditions, the monotheist ones, largely, are always invested in salvation? And that takes all sorts of different expressions, but like God wants to take sides against Pharaoh. God wants to defeat sin, law, death. God desires human flourishing and all that kind of stuff. And then you have traditions that are seeking enlightenment, one where our identities and our attachments are seen really differently. If you think there's only one story and one truth that captures them all, you have to convince someone that when we talk about salvation as a Christian, when I experience freedom from shame, that that's the same as enlightenment. When it, like they're not the same thing, like they just don't work that way. You don't get up from enlightenment. Uh, you don't get from enlightenment the the passion that animates right the civil rights movement. They, 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 they can, it can support the individual, but the deep commitments under it are different. Enlightenment and salvation, once you recognize them as different tasks, different wisdoms that are passed down, then you can actually start to relate the traditions in very fruitful, mutually transformative ways. And I think that um, uh, uh, that setup, right, comes from John spending all this time asking the questions we've been talking about, like about Christology. Right, like, well, you got the historical Jesus. Then you see, like, what's going on in the Christian tradition, all this kind of stuff. But then the whole time, it's always been telling a story like where the Western world was the world and eventually it conquers it all. But what if we don't want to do that? Then 
What do we do with the thing that was always getting itself done in every moment and has been from the very beginning, the Logos? But what if we think of it this way? Anyway, um, uh, sorry for rambling, but I think that those uh, that picture sets up for a way, right? Some of these intuitions people have and go like, bump this, Jesus, they think necessarily exclusive. The example of like John, and there are plenty of others, show that like, no, no, when you start asking all the Jesus questions and the God questions and you think about what's going on, it can actually set up for us to then go into the world and go like, there are plenty of places. Uh, uh, people are being called uh, to join what we call the Christ and they may not know it. And there are plenty of places people in the church feel like they're being called outside of the church, but they're actually being called by the Christ and you should be faithful. And if we're smart as leaders in the faith, we will learn what Peter learned, right? Like uh, sometimes you could be buddy, buddy with freaking Jesus Christ, you know, like the historical Jesus Christ, talk to him after God raised him from the dead. And then this dude who was trying to kill your ass convinces a bunch of Gentiles. They don't got to get snipped and they are down with God. And he's right. Like, think of how many, there are so many things where I just want to go like, yeah, but Peter was faithful because he realized he was wrong. And I think so much Christian leadership today are, could be faithful by just admitting they were wrong. And that the spirit of people responding to the spirit of Christ might be leaving congregations because they're being faithful in congregations to start to make space for those being faithful and then learn uh, to encounter uh, the spirit more deeply. So do you think then that this ongoing, uh, you know, fidelity um, to the movement of, of the, the Christ in the world, uh, do you think that can ever be captured fully in a, in a community, like an institution, like the church? Because if people, people are, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think people are, are piecing out and, and following the Christ to other places. Um, and like, I think I could be wrong, but I think like, at least in America, like the American evangelical church is dying. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, I think yeah. that actually the animating force and presence behind that is the Christ. And so like, I'm more interested in now asking, okay, well, what's the thing that's going to, to, to arise from the ashes? you know, what's, what's the next thing? Like if we're, we're Christians, right. So like we shouldn't fear death because resurrection. So like, what's yeah. the, what's the resurrection of the church going to be? That's the question that I'm interested in. But then I guess it's like, it's going to have to be an ongoing process, right? The church is going to have to yeah. continuously change and develop based off of their time, place and, and location. It's never going to be this mm -hmm. one thing. It has to be this organic. Yeah. It doesn't arrive. That, right. Yeah. Like, and I think that's sometimes the temptation. Like, we like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. So if we're gonna, oh, we're gonna, it's it's always in process, always a blah blah blah. So, like, so like, what is like the next really good expression, like, and and how do I find that in a church, right? It, I think the uh, the people should be asking those questions, but also faithfulness is about uh, showing up uh, in uh, in with what's in front of you. And I think a lot of times people want a solution. They want to know, like, if you look at church history, there's been big habits where, like, for a couple hundred years, things get flowing. It works pretty well, it, given that system, and then it, like, shakes up, and then it gets ugly, and then it reforms, and they, things like that happen. Uh, and if you start asking the, like, you know, questions from 40,000 feet up, 
then it's really hard to know what you do with your own life in the present. But if you're asking about like in this moment and in this year or in this week, each of us as individuals and in the communities we're in are being called uh, to fidelity. That's something we can do. And it's precisely by being faithful that new possibilities become uh, available. And the, I think one of the situations we're in is the number of people who see all the big problems is much higher than it's ever been in human history, right? Like if we went back and started even looking through some of the prophets, uh, they're pointing things out. Uh, and the people who don't, are, don't recognize the way they're being oppressed, right? And so they argue with the prophets. They're like, no, the king's great. And he's like, no, uh, you're basically slave labor building military weapons for another country. Like this is not what God wanted, right? They're like, no, we love our leader. He's great. Um, and uh, and so the, the we have we're at a place where more of us have anxiety and fear about a future we can't figure out, and we know we don't have much agency to do anything about it. So it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And I think it's like in that context, uh, like where will the church be, and how big will it be? What will its influence be in fifty years? Who knows? Um, and it's above our pay grade to figure all that out. But I, I think it is worth us to think about what are the spaces and communities uh, that I'm in? How can I be faithful with the agency I have in them? Um, um, and, and listen to like, what are the kind of spaces I can help generate um, either alternative spaces or transforming others? Like the, you or you don't lose, don't lose all your sleep about something you have no agency over. Uh, be faithful in the places you, with what you say, and do, um, and know that that's called sowing seeds into what God's doing, who perspective is like way bigger than ours. Uh, also, is it really that depressing if the church is no longer socially, culturally dominant uh, so that we have to make space in Congress less than interested in radical fidelity to Jesus, right? Like, the, uh, I think there is a sense that when you're no longer the chaplain to empire, then there are plenty of people who don't see the benefits of that kind of a community. Um, but, but I imagine if we went through the more disappointing moments as ministers, a lot of those moments are not going to be when our other fellow clergy we're working with look at you and go, Josh, that's a horrible idea. I can't believe you'd suggest we spend our time and energy doing this. Like, it makes no sense. Like, where are you getting this shit from? You know, we're following Jesus, right? So could you just do some more games, right? Like, no, that's not what ministers tell each other. They're sitting there and then you're always having to negotiate. <laughs> like, okay, I know we're all trying to do this Jesus thing, but we also are doing this insert, whatever, like uh, building people, institution job. And when the institutions were built at a time, uh, Christianity had a cultural capital that sent people there that were not that interested in following Jesus. It then just creates anxiety and transitions in uh, communities, right? And then ministers are sitting there going, like, I vocationally committed my life to this. And now half my day is doing stuff that I think we're only doing to keep some people at the church who I don't, not really sure they want to follow Jesus 
they're really invested in their teenagers getting out of high school without being pregnant, you know, or whatever their, their thing. Like, um, it, it's just like, it's not the church's job to make the world's greatest citizens, workers, and family members, right? Like Jesus, like not optimistic about if you're faithful, right? Like, uh, on all three of those, um, I do think it, it is a, uh, 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 like the the death of a certain part of the church is an invitation to think about uh, what faithfulness looks like. And the hardest part, I think, is that our current economic situation is one where it's harder and harder to free up the space for individuals to steward and curate the space for like authentic life-giving relationships and um, and then like ways of investing in your community uh, that matter. Like, that that just is a really, really hard thing. Um, and I know lots of ministers uh, and congregation leaders uh, who, if you look at the demands put on uh, clergy and leadership uh, now to years before, it's significantly higher. Uh, the support is lower and the anxiety among the congregants around religion, culture, politics, and stuff is even higher. So it like, I'm not surprised when I think of, you know, our current situation. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm, I'm rather optimistic when it goes like long-term is it human beings don't like are not good at settling for shallow answers for a long time. Like you, at some point in a week, you probably think at some point I'm going to die. What am I going to do with that? Uh, occasionally, you have the conversation with a friend and you're like, oh, shit, this is possible. What do I normally do when I talk to people? Um, you know, or you like take the risk to try something and that you find new life. Like I think human beings, uh, as much as our larger systems would like for us to become cogs, uh, there's a certain kind of a uh existential angst around the transcendental that uh is generative um but i mean it might just be that trip really likes process thought so that's what he's gonna say um but you know <laughs> what, what do you think what do you think like as someone who you know people that listen to your podcast they follow along and the podcast itself has taken new forms over time uh, even like the kind of conversations you regularly have, the way you self-locate and identify right throughout it has, uh, has changed. Your vocation, where you get paid has changed, even though I would like, I, I imagine in, uh, in liberating or liberating your voice enough to externalize it for others, there are plenty of people who are now like, feel a deeper resonance with your questions and such. Um, like, what do you think you're learning? Like, like having a space where you get to interact with people that are hearing you process your stuff out loud. Oh man, that's a, that's a really good question. What am I learning? Um, man, well, I think like, I think it's funny. I think you kind of nailed the, the the podcast to a T the the podcast in a way has just kind of been me uh processing out loud with a wide variety of people 
my own spiritual walk and journey, like asking the kind of questions I want to ask the people I want to ask and like shifting as I shift. Um, but the, the things, the kind of things that I've been learning, I guess, like, Hmm. I've been learning. One of the things that I'll, I'll say this way that I learned most recently is like being, being faithful to the present moment like the moment that I'm in right now, being faithful to that, that present moment uh, and being faithful to Christ, I'll say in that, in the present moment, and then doing whatever you feel like is the faithful thing to do in that present moment is probably the thing that you should do. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I, one of the big, I mean, I went through the, like you said, the vocation change and I, I was so wrapped up. My identity was wrapped up in Josh as a pastor. And I assumed that in order for God to love me or for me to have some kind of, you know, to use my, you know, youth pastor language impact for Jesus in this world, that the only way for me to do that was to be a pastor or was to have some kind of platform like, like this podcast or to write Mm -hmm. books or something. But then I've learned that, well, that's not the, that's not necessarily the case. Like I, if I'm just, if I am faithful and present in each moment of every day and in all of the interactions that I have with people, then perhaps that's, perhaps that's what it's about. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. I, I guess I've learned that, that uh, the God that is somehow uniquely revealed in the person of Jesus is, is much bigger than I ever thought he was and continues to get bigger, you know, every day, um, as I continue to ask questions and, uh, and grow. And as I continue to experience, um, God, like, I mean, I remember (laughs) one of the big shifts for me was realizing like, well, God has to be at least as big as the universe, which is (laughs) (laughs) unfolding and expanding, uh constantly and but then one thing that i still keep coming back to is this the idea of the incarnation like Mm -hmm. that's been my jam for whatever reason incarnation has been my jam especially when i realized how minuscule people are in this universe but somehow as christians we radically believe and make this this statement of faith that out of this big freaking massive universe that we don't even understand that is continuing to grow whatever force or or divine being is the the creator and sustainer and pushing forward or <laughs> which is a word i just made up of that thing somehow yeah. cares about people enough to become one of them and was uniquely you know uh uniquely revealed in the person of jesus like that just blows my mind and like, I almost feel content with like, yeah, okay, cool. Like that's, I don't know. Yeah. The, hmm. Kierkegaard has a line where he's like, yeah. if you, if you just found a note that said the infinite became finite, that would be enough. Right. And, and uh, I don't know if it would be for me, but I'm not Kierkegaard, but I think I, I, I mean, I get what he's saying. Right. Like, uh a lot of times like because one's really familiar with their own religious tradition, right? Like then you miss that the like 
at the very heart of it is that right the infinite became finite um um uh yeah and the incarnation for me is really important uh <laughs> i mean the last half of my last book was basically arguing that the incarnation is god's means of salvation so um there's there's that but the the you know the other side of it i think is um and you mentioned like oh that the that god became human but like even in john right it's god became sarks like flesh and that's even bigger than just being human um it's the greek word for just all all material existence right and so the like one like if in the if the same temptation occurs to the church right that its story should be all human stories um and that kind of thing like the the incarnation a cosmic picture of christ is even it even decenters making normative um like just the human story is the place god shows up uh if the if the incarnation is a, the word of god made flesh um but that all comes from the word then like the word of god is the generative principle since a fluctuation of vacuum and in a vacuum you get like you know at least on dominant cosmology now uh quantum fluctuation of vacuum and then boom right like and, and very quickly you get generative habits uh like that the physicists are dumbfounded by like there are these things that vary in the first milliseconds of all of existence um picked up habits and now those habits are steady and they're the basis of everything else that happens on top of it without it we wouldn't have ended up with uh the energy that's exploding out the big bang uh, uh pull things in to create things like stars and suns and uh, uh planets and all this kind of stuff and and precisely because of those habits from the very beginnings of our cosmos then uh, uh you have a couple generations of dead stars where they explode and throw out in this in this heat and then over time you build more complex chemicals right and now you got like a freaking periodic table and the cosmos is still expanding it's really generative because every time you, there, there's like an emergence of a new layer of complexity. It's precisely the generative habits underneath it from quantum physics to solid state physics to chemistry that then make the others possible like life, right? And then you see the generation of single-celled organism and it grows. And then when they start relating to other living things, and then you start to see ecosystems form and this network and web of life and how they all relate and they have different niches and things, and then they grow in complex. And then like when humans emerge, like that we aren't in a vacuum. We're the emergence of the ongoing being fleshliness of the cosmic uh, of the cosmic word. Like the, the cosmic Christ has been getting itself done forever. And then like you ask yourself, then what is it that's so unique about humans um, that makes this to us tell the story? It's not because the story doesn't include everyone else. It's because humans, at least if on our planet, are the only species we know that knows it's going to die and then starts to ask questions of meaning, purpose, and value. And when we ask those questions, it's not just us that are objects of value, if you trust the wisdom of our Jewish uh, uh, ancestors. It's all creation, right? This is the beginning of the whole thing. God made all things, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. And notice you haven't shown up yet, and it's good. And then when there's a community of humans, it's very good, right? So like, it's in that space, in the community, right? And how do humans even thrive? It's social cooperation. How do humans figure out how to do all these things precisely through language? Right. Anyway, like you start to look at this whole thing and then you pick, you go like, what does God do with this? How is it relating? Right. And if you think cosmic Christ, a creative transformation we taught with Cobb, then 
in every culture, in every space, the same generative desire that has created the whole structure to make relational uh, vulnerability, risky love possible in humanity. All these, all this part, uh, it was God's investing in it to do what? Increase depth of relation and subjectivity, expand our horizon for responsible, uh, loving action. And so then you go like, then what does it mean for Jesus uh, to be the Christ? Is it in him? And this real deal human person, he was fully faithful to the call of God before him, such that in his life, he made material, he made visible the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, not by being sinless and separating himself from all of humanity, but by being fully human and fully faithful to the God who's always been calling and luring and inviting us to participate in God. Right. And so like that, like that, uh, we wouldn't have been able to tell the story that way if we didn't have science and have a big cosmological picture. But once you do, then you're like looking right like back at John. You're like, oh, junk. Oh, junk. Let's let's think about this. Right. And I bet if uh, some poor lad is stuck listening to this and 200 years about a moment, too many people talked about God on podcasts and the, the cosmos has this we have a different, richer understanding. Um, those very same texts, right, will animate the people in that space to describe their encounter with the divine in connection to this legacy of people that were faithful in their context so that they're inspired to be faithful in theirs. And that might mean they go, okay, look, yes, Josh and Trip, like it was 2022, right? And they were still under the assumption uh, about uh, Einstein ended up being actually wrong. It's okay. They didn't know this. Uh, and then the universe isn't technically expanding, uh, as it, you know, like you could imagine this because there are live possibilities where the math all works out. The universe isn't expanding. Um, and they wouldn't go, oh, it's bullshit. Do you see You see what Tripp did? Like he was doing this whole like poetic rendering where it coheres with what science says, but also recognizes the value that's at the very heart of the affirmation, the goodness of all things at the heart of the biblical testimony. And like, I don't know why we're even listening to him now that we know the assumptions he made about physics are wrong. They're going, no, no, he was giving testimony, right, to the truth that is inside him that he's encountered in Christ, honoring and receiving the tradition and doing it in face of the best uh, thinking and encountering he can do uh, in the world today, right? And what do you hope our grandchildren do? The same thing. Right? Like, if I succeed as a parent, I hope uh, they do what Jesus did with what he was handed and cut any of those tribal legacies I had. I want them to double down on the justice and the welcome. And uh, I hope my grandkids do it. And when they do, and then they're embarrassed about me for generations from now, I'll be like, hell yeah, I was blind and ignorant, right? And, and I think that like that tension though, so much of like, once you see a, a perspective where the flux and movement of becoming and in history is a place God's dwelling, as opposed to like where God's throwing rocks of certainty and being at, then um, think of like, the uncomfortability right now we're dealing with and in uh, uh, a lot of American denominations processing the history of race, right? Because part of what you're defending when you, when you just choose to remain blind uh, is your great grandparents. And um, what are we doing when we're de defending privileging certain stories of slaveholders and all that kind of stuff, like all those kind of things, I think, uh, how you relate to your past changes when you have a picture of what fidelity looks like. 
Because what if the most, uh, what if faithfulness means like calling out your ancestors in certain places, but you're calling them out on behalf of what the gift you've been given, right? And I think um, the, 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 that's easier to hear being called out uh, when you, one, anticipate your grandchildren doing the same to you, um, but also uh, you don't think the, like, you know, Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever was a collection of ideas that finally got worked out, be it at an ecumenical council or uh, in, uh, you know, Luther's longer catechism or definitely not the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin. Um, but anyway. Yeah, dude, that, so exactly what you're saying is, is the kind of thing that on days when I'm, you know, sitting in what my wife calls existential crisis <laughs> and I'm asking myself, why, why do I keep pursuing this Jesus stuff? Or like, am I even a Christian? Am I, do I even believe in God? Or like when I'm having these kind of moments, which happen all the time, this, these kind of conversations and everything that, that you just said is the kind of thing that brings me back and be like, yes, of course, of course, the, like, like welcome to the tradition, right? Like this, just seeing it as like this ongoing part of the tradition. And I, I mean, I loved how you, <laughs> you said that like challenging, um, like the, with the race stuff, challenging the, the racial, you know, structures that, uh, a lot of Christianity was built on um, is like, it is an invitation from the gift that we have already been given, like from the tradition itself. Like that's how mm -hmm. you are faithful to the tradition. And like, that is exciting. That's really like, I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> and like, that's the kind of thing that wants to, that keeps you wanting to come back. But also this, this idea of this, you know, the generative principle that has been in and through all things since forever. Um, and knowing that somehow I have the ability to then interact with that and uh, be a part of that ongoing um, process, like, of course, yes, I want to be a part of that. So it's just, I don't know, it, I get excited, like, mm. um, and, and it just, part of me gets, gets frustrated because it's like the, the story and the, the news, uh, so to speak, that I was given, um, you know, in, in my faith journey, um, had been so lackluster comparatively, yeah. <laughs> but also like without that, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. Like it's all just a part. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm, I'm here for it. I don't know, but I, yeah, I, Oh, I, and I think that like, you're right. Like that a lot of times you get to a space where then you, you're looking at the conclusions you held previously and you're like, Oh, yeah, that's embarrassing. But then you also go like, I'm only here because I did encounter the divine when I thought that. Right. And so the, like for, for me, like I need to have a big enough picture of God um, that I was always lovable. And a lot of times my thoughts, if I just am judging uh, people by their conclusions, like I, I mean, I, I professionally give grief to uh, uh, certain theological convictions that I used to hold. Like, and I'm, I'm like, what was I thinking? But then if you, if I went back and read 
my journals at that point. I'm like, uh, I, I regularly am describing my encounter with the divine and the presence and like how I was blessed in congregations. I would never take my kids to and all that kind of stuff, you know? Um, and so like, it's from that place. I, I want to go like to have a big deep exhale on figuring everything out. Um, because like, like God met me when I was an obnoxious Calvinist in rural North Carolina. Um, God met me when I was really sure I'd figured everything, you know, like all, all this, like, like, and that's the encounter with the spirit that it is still, a, I'm still in that journey, even though I'm not at that place. So why would I put the pressure on how I understand the world now to, you know, capture something with some finality uh, when, you know, in 20 years, like uh, we may be hanging out and then going like, yeah, we were really into that then. And then, but what got us to that point was that, that this moment's another moment on our encounter with the spirit and as followers of Jesus, like they, yeah, it's always tangled up and a story of a homeless first century Jewish prophet who was executed by empire and inspired and empowered all sorts of people that were probably not like, uh, not going to be the one zip recruiter was going to send his way. Right. Like, so the, the, I think the recognition of where, where you've come should raise our commitment to encountering the spirit in the present and trusting it and decrease our need for certainty and absolute finality on our doctrinal understandings on questions and such, uh, because we're here in a different space than we were earlier. But all of that story is part of our life with the spirit, even though those ideas we left behind and like to make jokes at, right? Like, um, it's a good thing to do. Uh, and yeah. And, and yeah, I think it would be great if less people grew up Calvinist. Like, I don't, I don't think they, it's really hard. Um, but you know, <laughs> yeah, no, dude, I'm with you. It's like this, this idea of like, I'm, I want to be faithful and do the best with what I have and know today or what I think I know today and yeah. do the best with what I have to be somebody who brings things that are good and beautiful and true and loving into the world. And tomorrow, maybe that thing that I used to think was wrong and that's okay. I'm going to learn. I'm going to continue to grow and then do the best with in that space, in that moment with what, with what mm -hmm. knowledge that I have. It's, it's the, the continual ongoing process and, and relationship interaction uh, with the Christ. Um, that's mediated through conversations with other people or hanging out in nature or drinking a good beer or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, and just being faithful to that. And like, that's, that's something that I think like I can give my life to, and that I want to give my life to. And that's really yeah. exciting. <laughs> that's it, really exciting. Do you, think that, do you think that there's a, uh, um, you know, the passage where Paul says, um, it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. It's, you know, he's like, it's all about new creation. And I think a lot of Christians 
like thought, like take that as an observation just about the historical moment, right? Like, look, we're, you know, there's both options around and we're not trying to be like, you should be a Gentile or you should be a Jewish person. Like, um, uh, but if you think of him as like coming out of a like, uh, you know, militantly Jewish enough to not be into Christians whatsoever, right? Um, like that statement's much more like religious or non-religious because circumcision's a sign. Like it's how you show yourself as part of a tribe. It's like religious or not religious. It's not, I think it's new creation. Um, to me, I feel like when Christianity is at its best, uh, then it's not trying to parse out whether or not someone is circumcised or not, or whether they're Christian or not, or like wanting you just to be religious. It's about uh, new creation. Um, and a lot of times the, like that, that kind of rather eruptive vision just in that kind of language in Paul then gets tamed and used to justify, uh, you know, whatever your tribe's version of circumcision is. And then should you question any allegiance to this whole thing, it's like threatened to the reality of God. And Paul's like, no, 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 it's about new creation. And it's not like new creation in some generic sense for him, like where it's just like handy damdy, you know, like loosey goosey stuff. It's new creation um, because uh, sin, law, and death have been defeated. Like he's like, God raised Jesus from the dead. And you're debating uh, the wrong thing. And I just, you, you wonder uh, how many times like I would get so animated and worked up over something. But then five years later, I'm like, whoa, I wasted a lot of time on that. Right. And then there are these other things that just laid there right in front of my face. And I never picked them up, probably because it was fidelity was going to cost me something or make me uncomfortable. Um, but when new creation's the thing, you ask different questions. And uh, the you, oh, you know, one thing I I I don't know if this would be helpful or not, but it was for me. Uh, when I was processing all the baggage that comes with realizing. Uh, you are not like your giant collection of contradictions and that your Christian story, like only makes sense if you put it in a book, because then it's in a book, you know? Um, and I was talking with a, a friend of mine who uh, like much older mentor friend, and we were talking about it and it was, uh, and he said, you know, it seems like you're starting to become grateful for those things that, are frustrating and like, why was I here? All that kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and he said, have you put your gratitude in a prayer? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I like, he's like specific prayers. I bet you have a whole lot of people that, uh, when you see their posts on Facebook, now you roll your eyes, but you wouldn't know that you're the beloved of God without them. He's like them. Make that list and uh, write out a prayer of gratitude for them and start doing that. So when they come up, like you have a short prayer of gratitude when you see things that remind you of like just disgust at this. Like, and I, that happened plenty in lockdown. But then to, to, to know, like you have a prayer of gratitude. 
right? Where you see the person actually like, like let's imagine you, you know, you're posting your QAnon meme, but you were also like a volunteer at my youth group when I was in middle school and uh, like in the identity crisis of all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, God, uh, you blessed me and showed me your love uh, through Josh. I'm grateful that that image bearer, a bear your image to me. Uh, give me eyes to see him as you see him, right? And, and, and just having, and you know, everyone can write, write as their own, but like to have that on your tip, I think change starts to teach you to see even your past story and stuff differently, right? Because you start to see it and are grateful for the very things, the very places where those individuals were joining with God and communicating to you uh, the best things, right? So anytime, whether their religion sucks ass or they have none, or it's they got the best answers and are normally cut off from being faithful, right? Like uh, all that aside, like when anyone joins uh, a, a a teenager struggling with identity to let them know they're loved and they're cared for, uh, that was called saying yes to the lure of God. Uh, if it was in the trappings of Roman road and uh, um, discussions about the third use of the law, that's fine too. Um, that happens, right? And but then if it happens and you're like, you know, you're not in a religious context, like some of the stories you've shared, right? Where, what do I do when I lose my identity as a minister? But I'm like serving beer at a bar and up having this really beautiful conversation with someone. Like, do I, I'm supposed to feel guilty that's outside of this context. Um, like, what, do, how do you make sense of this? Right? Like anytime you, uh, anytime like another person for a moment becomes uh, joins you in an experience of God, like figure out how to give gratitude for it. And I think it, it to me, it started to change uh, how I even see potential in the people that drive me up a wall. Um, because I actually am giving testimony to times the collection of ignoramuses that have loved me well in my past actually loved me well. They said yes to God and I'm a been blessed for it. And like, once I started to do that, it, it's uh, it's like the inverse of praying for your enemy because they are my enemies. I just think they're like really, really wrong and backwards. Um, but then going like, yeah, but you've been blessed because of them. Like once you start to cultivate that, it, it really, it, it, it dramatically changed my cynicism uh, towards a lot of things. Uh, if that makes sense. I, and I imagine a lot of people have those and sometimes coming up with like a, a short prayer where when that comes up that you can use because you know how they blessed you can be really helpful because if you know, they said yes to the lure of God at another point and it was, it led to something beautiful. <laughs> um, uh, then, then if God hasn't written them off, then you shouldn't either. Yeah, man, that, um, huh, that reminds me of a story that happened recently. And I'll, I guess, uh, unfortunately I'll wrap up with it because I have to go to work. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. but, um, how long have we been talking? Uh, I don't know. A long time. It's not so. It's not forty six. About two hours. Not too bad. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Well, my boss literally just texted me and said they'll be landing around ten fifteen. So I'm good. But uh, all right. Yeah, but it reminds me of like I had this really weird experience recently where uh, there was somebody that posted something on Facebook, and this is a person that I know um, from like a different time in life, and when I knew, like when I was actually interacting with them, they weren't like a Christian or anything. They were yeah. like, yeah, like sex, drug, rock and roll kind of person. Right. And now they've had this like hard shift recently um, into Christianity. They met a dude. He is a Christian. 
they became a Christian. They got married super fast. Now they're like married because God told them to, and they're doing their oh. thing and they're like hardcore, like Calvinist. And mm-hmm. part of me is like freaking out because, and I, I don't even interact with them. Right. Like I should be happy for them because, but part of me is like, you go down this path and you're going to get burned. And yeah. I was trying to explain this to my friend Jace and Jace was like, come on, Josh, like I'm a Calvinist. Like there's no, what's wrong with it. I don't, I don't see what you're saying, but like it bothered me, but at the same yeah. time that I should, I should be happy. And, and like, I tried to like think and reflect on it and just be like, well, this is their, their story. And I should be happy that they are somehow now interacting uh, with the God of the universe that I believe mm-hmm. is uniquely, you know, displayed in the person of Jesus. And like, that's their, that's their story. That's their journey. That's their walk that they have to do. It's not mine. Yeah. And maybe they won't get hurt. Maybe they need to do that. Like my friend, Andy, the guy who I started hosting this podcast with, like, I think he is flourishing in the realm that he's in right now. And I think it's a whole bunch of shit. And I think it's really dangerous and scary theology. That's not helpful but it's working for him. And may I just have, maybe I just have to be okay with that. And like, that's that, that has been huge because then I no longer feel the need. Like I have to have uh, all the answers or that I have to have these conversations where I just defend, you know, stringently the position that I hold right now, because I realize that tomorrow it's probably going to be different anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just, it produces like hopefully humility and grace and acceptance um and like yeah so i love i love that idea of having like those those little prayers um because it's just like that that constant reminder uh that yeah the, them they too <laughs> uh are, are a part of this and uh even if it it doesn't look like me or, or whatever so yeah, yeah i dig it in, in the in the perk you know, of doing that. And then you think to yourself, Hey, well, if they were doing the same, that might be the only, like the mechanism by which your significantly more conservative evangelical friends would ever pray a prayer of gratitude for you. Right. Like, um, like they're like, yeah, I guess I'm not supposed to complain about trip in this prayer, but I have grateful for these other things. Like if we all did that, then like it would be there'd be a few. Like it always is funny. Like especially those that um, I don't know if you had this when you're you were their youth minister and you know it's been ten years, or you know and uh, and then they like reconnect you about something and they're like oh, I just you know you impacted my faith so much and I'm I'm starting seminary at a Southern Baptist school and I'm like what you know uh, and you're like I did what huh no no no. Um, yeah, you know, it's, I just, I just wanted to tell you, thanks, man. You know, just, oh, all right. I yeah. appreciate that. Stay open-minded. <laughs> right. Listen to my podcast. Yeah. No, I had like, there literally, I had this conversation with my friend uh, yesterday because there's a, a student that when I worked in Florida, I had a really good relationship with, and I, I still do. Um, and they say very nice you know, similar things about me impacting their faith and stuff. And then they'll go and like, show me like these books that they're reading or like say something that I just 
like cringe at but i i don't want to crush their enthusiasm and i don't want to like you know what i mean like it's just like ah, i just yeah. they have i have to let them be and like they that and there there's a, an exercise in faith and trust for myself is that mm -hmm. i i have to have faith and trust that god will get them to where they they need to be you know and that like that's been something that i've been uh trying to really focus on as well and that, like that's been helpful even dealing with like you know when i have parents or family members who believe really dumb shit or like buy you know whatever um that like have faith and trust that the god that i interact with uh loves them too <laughs> yeah. and is interacting with them too and that god will get them to where they need to be and, and everything will be okay like that's yeah i don't know mm -hmm. yeah i understand uh, yeah <laughs> solidarity solidarity my friend solidarity yeah well thanks for uh having me back on the podcast <laughs>